Hello everyone, it's me, Josh, and for this week's SYSK Selects, I've chosen our episode, How Crack Works. And boy, oh boy, does the title ever say it all, because we really, really explain how crack works. So enjoy How Crack Works. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Uh, Jerry's over there. And uh, this is Stuff You Should Know. Jerry just waved. like She's waving at the audience that isn't here. Yeah. <laughs> she's waving to the world. It's a little weird. She may be on something. Uh, Josh, you know what's whack? Uh, Zach Attack <laughs> from Saved by the Bell. I don't even know what that is. You don't know what Saved by the Bell is? What's wrong with no, you? No, I know the, I, I know what that show is, but I never heard of the Zack attack. It's just Zack being Zack. Oh, gotcha. That yeah. is whack. Yeah. <laughs> well, never mind. I thought crack was whack, but the Zack attack is truly whack. No, I disagree. I was going to say, no, it's not right, because that's actually a pretty good show, but okay. Yes, crack is whack. Listen we're, to this. We're like Eminem up in here. We're what? We're like Eminem up in here. Yeah, yeah I guess so. <laughs> Refer to our hip-hop episode now. Go ahead. People. No, I'm just saying, people, if they're confused about why we sound so stilted and square, <laughs> oh, yeah. just go listen to hip-hop, and that explains yeah. everything. People like that one, surprisingly. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Man, we got a good email from a, uh, or a Facebook post from a graffiti artist. Oh, yeah? Yeah, good stuff. Nice. I can't remember his tag, but it was, like, really nice. Like, he was complimenting us, or he was just saying, hey? No, he's like, hey, I'm a graffiti artist, and here's my, my work. Nice. And uh, I was very impressed. And he is not on crack. No, because he's not whack, right? Exactly. So, uh, Chuck, I have a little uh, a little intro. Great. Uh, just uh, if you'll bear with me. <laughs> <clears throat> the year was 1985. Okay, I was uh, 14. Okay. What is it? It's one year P... BG. Yeah, very early on. Um, cocaine, which is a drug that had been sweeping the nation for about 10 years by then. Yeah. Uh, was up to $150 a gram. Uh, that's thanks to the demand um, and the available income of its well-heeled yuppie users yeah. who were willing to spend that kind of money on it. Sure. It was very much a, an expensive, white, uh, upwardly mobile person's drug. Yeah. Cocaine was. Sure. Wall Street. Yeah. And there were, at the time, articles that kind of said, cocaine's probably not that addictive. We shouldn't worry that much about cocaine. Yeah, Cocaine's early on, not sure. a very big deal. Yeah. It was mostly, like I said, a white drug. That same year, 1985... A new drug hit the scene. It was cheap, five to ten bucks a pop. Yeah. It gave you a very quick, very intense high. Yeah, short-lived. And it swept through lower-income African-American areas of the uh, United States. And all of a sudden, we had a problem. An epidemic. Yes. Yeah, because it was cocaine in a different form. Yeah, the country went crazy for it. And not only was it cocaine in a different form, it was cocaine being used by a different demographic. Yeah. That, as we'll see, America has always been threatened by. 
and always made legislation to dampen drug use among. Yeah, it's pretty interesting when you dig into this stuff. And so in 1985, when people started to get worried, Nancy Reagan became concerned. Mm -hmm. And when Nancy Reagan became concerned, as is usual, mm -hmm. she started to lie. <laughs> and we will we will get into what allegedly might have happened and why crack might have in, been introduced in this country. Because some people think it was the U.S. government, straight up CIA. Yeah, that's a, a really um, good point. So what you're referring to is um, Gary Webb's Dark Alliance article, right? Yeah, series of articles and now book. Mm -hmm. From 1996, I believe. Uh-huh. Gary Webb was an investigative journalist for the San Jose Mercury News. Yeah. And um, they had a front-page story where he basically figured out the connection between the CIA and the crack epidemic that started in, I think, 1984 in Los Angeles. Yeah, South Central. There was a dude named Freeway Ricky Ross, who's still around, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and he was the largest cocaine distributor uh African-American cocaine distributor in L.A. He was big time. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he had a new product called Crack. And it became very popular very quickly. Yeah. Um, and Gary Webb in 1996 traced the origin of this epidemic mm -hmm. back to, through Ricky Ross, back to some Nicaraguan freedom-fighting guerrillas that were backed and trained and possibly commanded by the CIA. Are we getting into this? Should we just go ahead and dive in? Let's just dive in. <laughs> do you, yeah. Do you want to? Yeah, why not? Okay. Um, all right, here's the deal in Nicaragua, a Central American country. Um, in the 1930s, a man named Anastasio uh, Somoza took power. And then about 40 years later, in 1979, the people revolted, um, overthrew him, and they were called the Sandinistas. Yes, yeah, so, you know, the whole Contra-Sandinista war in Nicaragua that raged in the 70s and 80s? That's what we're talking about. Yes. And the Sandinistas um, were communist, and that didn't fly so well with the U.S., who had long uh, cherished Nicaragua for their farmland and liked to have a toe in their pond, so to speak. Oh, yeah. And so communism there didn't fly, and so they said, you know what, I think maybe we should fund the Contras, maybe give them a little bit of financial assistance. Yeah, and the Contras weren't just one group. They were, that was like an umbrella term for any yeah. democratic or um, anti-communist group that was trying to paramilitarily overthrow the socialist leadership in Nicaragua. That's right. So we decided to help fund their uh, civil war. And um, the problem was though there wasn't a lot of dough like that we could say like, hey, let's use this money to do this. Yeah, because it was a secret war. Like, yeah. There was no congressional approval. It was a proxy war with the Soviet Union at the time. So some allege <laughs> that this is when um, the Reagan administration and the CIA got together to literally introduce cocaine dealers and cocaine uh, to South Central and crack cocaine to spread throughout the ghettos to raise money and use that money to fund the Contras. So here's the thing. Like, that was never proven, and Gary Webb never, ever said... He did not. He didn't say that the government directly introduced it on purpose or with the aim of creating an epidemic in the ghetto. He found connections between the CIA and drug lords. Right, cocaine. specifically 
Ricky Ross on yeah. one end, and then the CIA backed and possibly commanded um, uh, the f- Nicaraguan Democratic Force. Yes, the this Contra force. Yeah. Um, it, it, so their their business, their group was funded entirely from cocaine sales and trafficking, and that all went to this guy Ricky Ross. And there's no way that the CIA didn't know about this. Yeah, and uh, there were at the time. Well, we'll get back to Webb in a second. But um, in the '80s, there was, you know, when the whole Iran Contra thing broke out, there was the Kerry Committee who did some investigating. The Kerry Committee report uh, from John Kerry, obviously, mm-hmm. um, found that quote the Contra drug links included payments to drug traffickers by the U.S. State Department of funds authorized by the Congress for humanitarian assistance to the Contras. Uh, And then later on, there was an internal CIA investigation in the 90s Mm -hmm. where uh, they found that there is no evidence that um, the CIA actually brought drugs into the United States. Um, However, and these these are all quotes, Mm -hmm. however, during the Contra era, the CIA worked with a variety of people to support the Contra program. And let me be frank, there are instances where the CIA did not in an expeditious or consistent fashion, cut off relationships with individuals supporting the Contra program who are alleged to have engaged in drug trafficking activity. So basically, the internal investigation said, well, there might have been some people we were dealing with that were doing this, and as it turns out, we didn't really do much about it. Right. So uh, as far as you can go without hyperbole, and it's still pretty shocking, Sure. the CIA backed, trained, and possibly commanded um, at least one guerrilla group, the uh, Nicaraguan Democratic Force. Yeah. And the Nicaraguan Democratic Force, the FDN, um, sold cocaine to Freeway Ricky Ross. Mm -hmm. Freeway Ricky Ross is where the crack epidemic originated. Yep. And so just to finish up with Webb, though, um, after he wrote this Dark Alliance series, he was shunned by mainstream press in the United States, sadly, yeah. uh, all three of the major newspapers, um, you know, the LA Times, New York Times, and I guess was the Washington uh, Post. Post came out. And it was not only shunned, they like tried to discredit him. Oh yeah, they wrote articles, they put um, 17 reporters in 20,000 words to a three-day rebuttal of Dark Alliance. That was the, uh, the LA Times. Yeah, rather than pick up the story, they tried to De- demolish it and yeah. web new york times um suggested he was a reckless reporter prone to getting his facts wrong he already had won a pulitzer prize at this point i think mm-hmm. or something else and um the mercury news defended it for a little while and then backed off and apologized he ended up quitting and committed a very weird suicide yeah in which he shot himself in the head twice yeah <laughs> uh who knows? Obviously, if you get on the internet, there are tons of outlets that say, well, obviously, it's not a suicide. It was a murder. Mm-hmm. Um, so who, who knows about that? Um, other other people have said, no, it does look kinky, but the first shot wasn't fatal, and he was able to do it twice. Who knows? Draw your own conclusions. That's, a, that's some raw nerve right there. But he claimed that there were people like, you know, he saw what he thought were CIA people like climbing up his fire escape and stuff the previous days, and 
Who knows? All I'm saying is they're making a movie about it with Jeremy Renner this summer. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Great. Yeah, it's going to be good. Good. I'm glad. He, uh, I ran across him when I wrote an article on America's Army. Jeremy Renner? No. Um, Gary Webb? Yeah. <laughs> he wrote an expose. America's Army is this, uh, it's a video game. Uh-huh. And it's basically like a training game for the Army where you can play this free game, um, but you sign up to be contacted. If you're any good at it, the Army contacts you. And he did this. It's like a recruiting tool through video games, but the army categorically denied that's what it was. But that's huh. obviously what it was. And Gary, De- Gary Gary Webb, one of his last exposés was on that. And you know, we should mention that today, all three of those major news outlets all say, "Boy, we kind of got that one wrong." Yeah, um, we shouldn't have done that to Gary yeah. Webb. Maybe we shouldn't have driven Gary Webb to his possible suicide. Yeah. <laughs> So Gary Webb did all this investigation, did all this legwork, and he connected the dots pretty well. But there's still this maddening question, tantalizing question, who invented crack? It yeah. came out of nowhere. Yeah. And so to kind of answer that, which we can't, um, you have to look at how crack is made. And, and to look at how crack is made, you have to go back a lot further than the 1980s. You have to go back to the 1880s and actually a little further before then. When cocaine first was introduced to the United States after it was um, isolated. The alkaloid was isolated from the coca plant in the mid-19th century. Yeah, and that's when it was isolated. And, I mean, for centuries, uh, people in South America were wise to the fact that if you chew on this plant, it'll give you some go-juice and you can work more. Yeah, and people still chew the heck out of it. Yeah, so it was was no secret to the South Americans, but like you said, it was uh, the mid-1880s when it was actually isolated and um, became a, a narcotic, an abused narcotic drug. Right, but first, um, you could buy it all over the place. You could yeah, order sure. it through catalogs. Um, you can, uh, doctors could prescribe it. Sigmund Freud was a, an ardent prescriber of it. Um, and it was a very popular drug found in tonics, Coca-Cola. Sure. For real. That's not a myth. Um and, and cocaine was, uh, well, everybody loved it for a while. Yeah, uh, until, well, not until, they still loved it and still do today, I imagine, in some yeah. circles. But in 1914, it was made illegal with the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act. And um, Right, which, do you remember I said earlier that, like, uh, everything, like, this crack has a, a real history of, um, it shows the history of racism in regards to drug laws. Oh, yeah. So the Harrison uh, Narcotic Act um, outlawed opiates and cocaine Uh for the first time in the United States. And it was based on concerns like Chinamen were luring white women to their their dens of iniquity in in Chinatown through opium. And uh, Southern blacks were sniffing cocaine and it gave them superhuman strength, and they were raping white women as a result. So those were, those two things were passed. And we have federal legislation from 1914 as a result of those kind of fears. And if you kind of if you keep that in the back of your mind, uh-huh. and then pay attention to the drug policy that comes out later on from sure. crack, you'll it, it's 
been going on since then, and it continues to today. Are you saying a pattern emerges? A pattern emerges. <laughs> so uh, cocaine is um, cocaine powder is you have to actually manufacture it. You don't find a cocoa plant and like knock shake it, it, shake it, and all this <laughs> white powder falls out. It makes like a tinkling sound on the way down. Yeah, uh, it is made by dissolving the paste, the cocoa paste, um, in a mixture of hydrochloric acid and water. Then you add some potassium salt, mm-hmm. separate out the bad junk, maybe add a little ammonia, and then the powder is separated out, and you've got... Cocaine powder. Cocaine. And from there, you can sniff it, you can add a little water to it and inject it. Yeah. Or you can make something called freebase. Yeah, I never quite understood what freebase was. I thought it was a... I thought freebasing was a thing. It is. Yeah, but freebase is also a, a it's a noun and a verb. Right. Okay. So you so maybe I do you freebase freebase. Oh, you see, <laughs> I've been doing it wrong. You verb the noun. Okay. So <laughs> you've been doing it wrong. <laughs> Just, this stuff doesn't work. Yeah. I don't know what everybody's so excited about. Um. So w- with freebase, you take cocaine uh-huh. and you add something highly flammable, say ether, um, and you. After you dissolve the the cocaine in ammonia, mm-hmm. you add ether to it, and then you smoke it. But you're smoking something that has like a highly flammable solution involved. Yeah, tell that to Richard Pryor. Yes, in 1980 when he was filming Bustin' Loose, yeah, he caught himself on fire. He was smoking freebase yeah. and drinking 151 proof rum yeah. one night, and I think he was doing it in his garage too, which so it was unventilated. And he, he caught fire. Yeah, but you know what? There's also reports that he set himself on fire on purpose. Oh, really? That he poured the stuff all over his head and lit a match. Oh, he went a little, a little cuckoo? Self-immolation. Um, I think that may be the right story now. Huh. I just saw a documentary on him, and I think that's what they say. I'm so glad you just corrected me mid-podcast. <laughs> Do you know how many emails you prevented well, us from? Well, I mean, that was the long stories that he freebased, and I think he even came out later and said, like, yeah, I was freebasing, but I also purposely set myself on fire yeah. in the ravages of a freebasing binge. Gotcha. Okay. So freebasing, uh, it was a thing, at least as early as 1980, but it was it, it was difficult to do. It was a multi-step process, and you needed something like ether. Ether's not the easiest thing to get your hands on. Sure, and dangerous, obviously. Sure. Um, but there was a way to smoke cocaine, and freebase was the way to do it, but that never really got a big foothold in, yeah. in any demographic in the country. It was just kind of a thing that some people, like Richard Pryor, did. Right, looking for a more intense high, I guess. Then, all of a sudden, mysteriously, out of nowhere, there is crack cocaine. Yeah, crack is also manufactured, um, but it doesn't require something like ether or anything flammable. No. Um, you dissolve it in a mixture of water and either baking soda, sodium bicarbonate, um, or ammonia, mm-hmm. and you boil it up, separate it out into the solid, cool it down, and then break it up, and you've got your little uh, white-ish or tan crack rocks. Right, and if you buy it on the street, supposedly they range in size from 0.1 to 0.5 grams. Yeah. Um, and they contain, the DEA says, between 75 and 90% pure cocaine. So it's quite a rush for you. Sure. Um and because it's so easy to make crack from cocaine, uh-huh. um, like nobody imports crack across the border into the U.S. It's all coke that comes into the U.S. Right. And then Wesley Snipes converts it into crack. <laughs> 
uh, in a factory operated and run by naked people because he doesn't trust them. What was that? New Jack City. Oh, man. That was like Blade. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man, I forgot all about New Jack City. That was a great movie. It was. Uh, And they call it crack because it makes a crackling sound. That's the baking soda when you put the fire on it. And speaking of put the fire on it, that's how you do it. Um, You have a little, I mean, there's different kinds of pipes, but the most often crack pipe you will see is the little straight shooter. A little glass tube. Yep. I find them on my dog walks in my neighborhood. Do you really still today? Yeah. Huh. Crack is still around. It's not like it went anywhere. Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) You thought, oh, they they got that problem all under control. (laughs) It's licked. Uh, So, you you, you know, you have the crack in one end and then a filter of some kind like steel wool or something in the other. Mm -hmm. You heat it up with your uh, lighter. Yeah, under, like on the outside of the glass tube. Or you can, I guess, hit it with the flame. But I think if you light it under the glass tube. That's generally the way to do it, I think. Yeah, it vaporizes it. That's right. And you smoke it. And um, pretty much immediately, uh, you're going to feel the effects. It's it's an immediate rush that lasts only about 10 or 15 minutes. And that's something that I didn't used to know. I learned it a few years ago, but I had no idea. I thought a crack high was like, you know, a couple of hours or something. No, I think it's one of the shortest highs on the market. Which is, I guess, why it's so addictive and dangerous right. and rampant. And because you come down and you're like, oh, I'd like to do that again. Exactly. Every 15 minutes. It's a short high, but it's also an extremely intense high, too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, 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 its addictiveness or potential for addictiveness is really high. Yeah. And so I know this article summarized very nicely for you exactly how it reacts with the brain. Mm-hmm. And so why don't you go ahead and just lay it on people? <laughs> All right. It has to do with dopamine, as we know. Yeah, dopamine, it's like your uh, pleasure center. It's it's the the basis of the reward system that we have, which is how we learn to eat and how we learn to have sex to reproduce. Like, we we feel good when we do certain things, so we want to do it again. Yeah. And the basis of that is dopamine. Right. So in the brain, the way it functions normally is a neuron will release dopamine, uh-huh. and it'll travel to a neighboring neuron, causing it to fire and release a, um, a pleasurable sensation. Yeah. And then that dopamine uh, molecule travels back to the original neuron uh-huh. via a transporter and is reabsorbed. And so it does like, its little thing and yeah. then goes back home and it's good, right? There's a certain finite amount of pleasure humans are designed to experience naturally. Yeah, because when we say reabsorbed, we say we said that a lot. I don't think people understand. That means... Basically, it turns that off again. Right. It does its thing and it's done. Yeah. It doesn't do its thing and do its thing and do its thing and do its thing. It does its thing once and goes back to the original neuron. Exactly. It sits now, on the couch and its little neuron waits says, to be released again. Let me know when you have sex again. Or eat something. Or eat some pizza. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, th- with with crack or other drugs that um, target the the dopamine system, um, they interrupt the process. Crack specifically interrupts the process of reuptake or reabsorption. Yeah. So you're you're smoking the crack, right? Mm-hmm. And it triggers this dopamine release. A flood. Well, yes. Yeah. But crack attaches to the transporter, which keeps the uh, the dopamine from being reabsorbed, which means it's just floating around in the synapse, the area between two neurons. Yeah. Like hitting that one neuron again and again and again. And it does it all throughout the brain, or all throughout the uh, ventral tegmental area, and 
you have this long, or well, not long, but you have this very intense, pleasurable sensation. Right. So basically, the reuptake, they just shut that down. So you're out there on your own. And the just causing just pleasure. floating around, yes. Your brain's a big pleasure center. And then after, I guess, five to 15 minutes, like the crack wears off and the dopamine is taken up once more. That's right. And the, the high is over and you are left going, I, I want to do that again. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I guess we should talk about some of the effects of crack use. Um, obviously, just like with cocaine, any kind of stimulant like that or amphetamine, you're going to be at risk for heart attack. Yeah. Sometimes on the spot. And because you smoke it too, like it has real, um, uh, real potential for problems with your respiratory system and your cardiopulmonary system in general. Yeah, a stroke is also a risk. Um, it's gonna make you very energized at first. You might, although your senses uh, may be heightened temporarily, your heart rate's gonna shoot through the roof. Your pupils are gonna dilate. Your temperature's gonna rise. Mm-hmm. Um, you're gonna be pretty anxious or irritable as you start to come down. And then you could be really aggressive and you could, you know, be more prone to start a fight with a cop (laughs) and feel like you have superhuman strength. Or say some crazy stuff to a passerby on the sidewalk and you have a bunch of gunk on the corners (laughs) of your mouth. That's true. Uh, If you have it with alcohol, that's not a good combination because that produces a chemical called uh, cocaethylene. Yeah, I looked this up. Like, this is a thing. It's like toxic is... All get out. Well, it's the the crack or cocaine and alcohol um, produce a third drug, basically a hybrid drug. Yeah, that's more than the sum of its parts, and um, it creates a, a longer lasting, intenser high from crack. Um, but it's also really toxic to the liver, really bad for you. Yeah, as if alcohol itself wasn't. Yeah, and it's not like you have to do anything to it or to, to get this thing. Like you just drink and smoke crack right. and your body does the rest. Your, your metabolism breaks this stuff down and creates this cocaethylene. And, uh, it's like yeah. alcohol on cocaine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so as we said, it's super addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, all this stuff, whenever you hear about drugs being addictive, it's all dependent on the person, of course. One person might smoke crack and never want to do it again. One person might be hooked immediately. Yeah. Uh, it all depends on your your susceptibility to addiction, which varies greatly. For sure. Um, I remember learning when I was a kid that you smoke crack once and you're addicted for life. Yeah, I heard that about heroin too. Um, yeah. The, the, but the, there is a very high potential for abuse with crack because sure. it's long la- It's short short term, short high, but an intense high. Yeah, and we don't want to say like crack is not addictive, but we don't want to spread the uh if misinformation. You smoke it once you're hooked for life. Yeah, which was really big in the 80s and the in the Nancy Reagan war on drug era, like a lot of misinformation was put out there just to scare people. Yeah. Um yeah. So, um we we're talking about it being addictive it's addictive in, because of the effect that it has on dopamine. Yeah. But it's also deleterious <laughs> to your health uh, because of the effect that it has on your dopamine reward system. Well, yeah, because, uh, and I know we've covered this in other drugs, if you do enough drugs like this, mm-hmm. um, it rewires your brain to the point where it just isn't working the same any longer. Yeah, your and you brain, actually need it. Your brain has like something, some sort of 
sensor in there that's like, okay, there's way too much dopamine going on. This person should not be feeling this much pleasure. So I'm going to just stop producing as much dopamine naturally. It doesn't need it. I'm going to destroy the dopamine that's floating around in the synapses. I'm going to reduce the level so that when you, now when you stop smoking crack, the the letdown is way worse. Yeah. Because you don't have as much natural dopamine as you did before you started smoking crack. And um, so you're craving your desire for crack to get back up is much more intense, much higher. Yeah, and here's the thing with crack, which is a little weird. Um, <laughs> many times you need to smoke more and more of it because of what you were just talking about, because you need to get that high. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it'll actually make you more sensitive to it, and you will get super high off crack, even as an addict, super quick, and you could super die like right. Instantly. Yeah. Um, which I'm not sure if they've reconciled how it can do both of those things, depending on who you are. Well, I think it's the same thing. It's like, you know, some people get addicted to it immediately and other people take longer. No, but I'm just talking about how it affects you. But I guess it's the same with alcohol because some hardcore alcoholics take a long time to get drunk and some get drunk like really quickly. Right. Yeah. So I guess it's the same deal. I guess it probably have to do with metabolism. A person's yeah. metabolism, right? I guess so. So um, once you once you are fully addicted, if you stop smoking crack, which, by the way, I think ch- I speak for Chuck too when I say <laughs> we highly recommend it if you smoke crack to stop smoking crack. Yeah, and if you haven't started yet, then just keep that up. Yes, do not start smoking crack. No reason to. Um, if you have our, if it's if you listen to this podcast after you became addicted to crack. Um, if you withdraw from crack, you're going to experience a pretty big come down in general. Yeah, severe depression, uh, anxiety, cravings. You're going to be not fun to be around. You're going to be really irritable and anxious. Yeah. Um, and exhausted yet like agitated all at the same time. Yeah. The good news is is that your brain will eventually restructure itself to return its dopamine levels back to normal or somewhere near normal. Yeah. Um, so you won't be depressed or withdrawn or anxious or irritated, irritable for the rest of your life. It's just while you're undergoing withdrawals, that's what it's going to be like. And it won't be pretty. It won't be pretty. No, and there's no um, medication designed to specifically treat crack. Um, and most therapies are um, pretty standard uh, rehab therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy, which teaches you how to... Um, how to basically go through life resisting the temptation of smoking crack. Right. How to disassociate maybe um, triggers or like places you go. Yeah, just from that lifestyle. Yeah, just yeah. to decouple your mentality from being addicted. It's just standard rehab yeah, treatment. pretty much. And, and we covered that like extensively in addiction. And there's another type of treatment that I hadn't heard of um, called contingency management. Had you heard of that? No, I hadn't, actually. It's apparently fairly popular for crack treatment. Well, what is it? Well, basically, it's um, you are rewarded for not smoking crack, which I'm sure goes over really well with Republicans. Where's my reward? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I haven't smoked crack ever. Well, you haven't been addicted. You have to be addicted oh. first. So um, the uh, 
you're given like a, a voucher or something. You make it like 30 days, you get a free movie ticket or something. Or like you're given stuff to um, incentivize. Yeah, yeah. incentivize not, not doing crack. And I'm sure stuff that is healthy, good for you, distracts you from thinking about crack, that kind of thing. I hadn't heard of that before yeah. this article. Okay, give someone a movie ticket. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You did good today by not smoking crack. Here's a movie ticket. <laughs> right. Uh, I always like the street terms. We should go over those real quick because 90% of street terms, I think, are probably just made up by the media. Yeah. You know, I always feel like they probably just call it crack or rock. Right. Or they call it bossa or french fries or real tops or glow. G- glow. <laughs> That's like... um. Wasn't that the drug in Strangers with Candy? Was it glow? That Jerry like rubbed on her gums and <laughs> yeah. they call it like glow? Probably. That was great. Um, Roxanne. That's my favorite. Yeah. Hot cakes. CDs. <laughs> what is that? Candy sugar. Yam. Jelly beans. I guess that kind of <laughs> makes sense. Jelly beans and french fries make sense. French fries does? Yeah, because, I mean, doesn't it look kind of like little pieces of french fries? <laughs> um, Yeah. It's it's more it makes more sense than bossa. Well, that's or real tops. <laughs> or here's one. There's no way that anyone in the history of humanity has ever called crack this. Electric Kool-Aid. Yeah. They got the wrong drug there. Yeah, that would be acid from sure. uh, the famous book. Like what is that? I don't know. I think those are newspaper writers who've never been on the streets. The kids today are on the electric Kool-Aid. <laughs> So one thing that we talked about about uh, crack is the weird sentencing um, laws dating back to 1914. And up until 2010, uh, when we passed the Fair Sentencing Act, if you were caught with one gram of crack cocaine, you would get as much time as someone caught with 100 grams of cocaine powder. Yes, and let's go back over this. In 1985, a gram of cocaine, powdered cocaine, cost $100, $150, and it was extraordinarily favored predominantly by white people. Yes. Crack comes along, 1985, 5 to 10 bucks, cheap, intense, high, um, and it becomes favored by African Americans, statistically speaking. Yeah, so... Some might allege that the U.S. government actually had a hand in introducing crack to the ghettos and then made stiffer sentencing once people were addicted to crack to put – and I'm not saying crack users are like awesome people and people should do this. But it's a nonviolent crime and they were being put in prison for the same amount of time as white counterparts who maybe raped and murdered people. A hundred to one ratio. You had to to get caught with a hundred times the powdered cocaine to get the same sentence as somebody caught with a hundredth of that amount of crack. That's right. But it's not like that anymore. Well, hold on. There was one other thing, too. There were mandatory minimum sentences that were extraordinarily harsh. Just getting caught with a little bit of crack on you, any amount of crack, I believe, Uh you got five years automatically. Yeah. Five years. That was the mandatory minimum for possession. Five years in prison. Yeah. For nothing else. Like, you could just be walking down the street and get caught with crack and never have committed another crime in your entire life. Yeah. And you would get five years in prison for that. 
And that was from the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which screams Nancy Reagan. Yeah. Um, and it, it was that was a big deal. It was the law of the land until 2010. Yeah, and uh, finally Congress passed the uh, Fair Sentencing Act, which reverted the ratio to 1 to 18 instead of uh, 1 to 100 mm-hmm. by weight and got rid of that mandatory minimum. And now uh, Attorney General Eric Holder is actually trying to get some retroactivity in these sentences and not trying to. They are actually releasing some people from prison. Yeah. Um, I remember we talked about that in the presidential pardon episode. Like, yeah. That was something that a lot of people were calling for. It was blanket pardon to nonviolent crack users who had been busted under this, yeah. these mandatory minimums. Here's an idea. Rehab somebody. But even still, there's still a skew in the ratio uh, between crack and cocaine. Um, uh, Probably arrests. No, not, not just that. The... Uh, the uh, sentences, I guess. Yeah. It's still an 18 to 1 ratio. It used to be 100 to 1, well, yeah. but it's still 18 to 1, and people are like, why not just make it 1 to 1? It's both it's cocaine and it's cocaine. Exactly. Yeah. Like, what's the problem here? So, yeah, there's been a long history of, um, I guess, racism. It, just put plain and simple. There's really no other way to put it. Yeah. Racism among drug laws. Yeah, and uh, since they uh, introduced the retroactivity releases, they've reduced 7,300 sentences. Uh, for an average of 29 months per inmate, and saved American taxpayers $530 million in the process. Um, other people will say, you're letting drug offenders out on the streets. Why are we doing this? And um, so there are two sides, obviously, opinion-wise to that story. All right. We'd be remiss if we didn't point out that people are upset about it in some circles. Oh, sure. It's not like, oh, that's a, that's a great idea, uh, categorically. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's problems with it for sure. Uh, can we talk about crack babies? Yeah, that was another thing that came out of the 80s was the so-called crack baby. Like, there was a huge part of this crack epidemic wasn't just addiction, it was babies being born addicted to crack. And, uh, thanks to a paper from 1985 by a guy named Dr. Ira Chasnoff, the crack baby fear started sweeping the nation. I mean... Huge, man. There's a New York Times video uh, that you can go watch. It's like 10 minutes long. It's called Retro Reports. Is that what it was called? Yeah. Yeah, it was really good. And it basically kind of brought, and I remember now, you know, back in the 80s, oh, yeah. Peter Jennings on the nightly news saying that, you know, babies are, and it's not Peter Jennings, of course. It's whoever wrote the story. It was Peter Jennings, Dan Rather. It was, it was Tom everybody. Brokaw, People, Time, uh, Newsweek. It basically was Basically saying these babies are being born addicted to drugs. It'll ultimately cost... Crack babies will cost the United States $5 billion. Yeah, they were saying it was going to be a lost generation of and, yeah, kids. Yeah, a nation of kids who are, you can't rehab. They're going to be, uh, the babies are aloof. They shake. They avoid eye contact. They avoid eye contact with their own mothers, which proves that they're going to be antisocial deviants when they grow up. Yeah, and this is not like, we're not rewriting history, man. That was like hardcore stuff that they were saying. Yeah. It was going to be, uh, They <laughs> one quote was, um, they will not be able to hold uh, to form to hold a job or form meaningful relationships. Right. So they were expected to completely overwhelm the education system. Maybe not even have an IQ of fifty. Is right. another quote. Yeah, and then completely overwhelm social services. So basically, there was just this whole um, generation of kids that were expected to be totally messed up because their mothers had smoked crack while they were pregnant, 
And so women were having their kids taken away from them. Some women were arrested. Yeah. And um, the the guy, the doctor who wrote the original paper, Dr. Ira Chasnoff, like started to very quickly back off of his oh, yeah. original statements. Yeah. Which he still today, like he admits, like he was pretty mouthy and not very savvy, pretty media naive, I guess you could yeah, put it. Yeah, for sure. And he said he would give these long-winded statements, and then the press would just pick out like the juiciest part and. Like, this guy single-handedly created the crack baby myth. Yeah. Because it never panned out in any way, shape, or form. And what they were saying was, like, the twitchy babies that you're seeing on TV when they're talking about the the symptoms of being a crack baby, that's premature babies. Like, you take any premature baby who's premature for any reason. Yeah. And they're going to display these symptoms that are supposedly associated with crack babies. Yeah, they did. Uh, the U.S. government sponsored a 25-year study of crack babies, not a two-year study or a five-year study. Mm-hmm. 25 years they followed these babies up into adulthood. Right. Uh, is now over. The funding ran out. And they found that um, by age four, uh, the average IQ of cocaine-exposed children was uh, 79. The average IQ for the non-exposed children was 81. Mm-hmm. Um, when it came to readiness at age six, uh, about 25% in each group scored in the abnormal range. Basically, all of the findings said it's the same as these other kids, but here's the deal. They weren't doing the study against crack baby babies and white suburban kids. They were doing it against a like model, which was other you know, poor black kids, basically, that right. were not crack babies. And they said they are all below average, so... The deal is, is it's poverty, right? It's not crack cocaine. They're scoring the same as non non crack babies, and they're all scoring lower because of poverty and and basically bad postnatal care through adulthood. Right, like you you might not have any problems physiologically, or not as not or cognitively from being exposed to crack in the womb. But if your mom's still smoking crack after you're born, you're probably not going to get the best care from your parents as, as possible. Yeah. Um, and they did find in that same study that children that were being raised in like a supporting, encouraging house, even uh, in um, poverty-stricken conditions, uh-huh. uh, tended to excel. Right. So um, it is. It's po- it was poverty they found out and... Um, postnatal care like you said and being born premature but the, yes and, but the crack baby thing never happened it was another example of hysterics so right about now i want to say if if it sounds like chuck and i are being cavalier have been cavalier with the idea of crack uh we're not we're not being cavalier with crack or addiction that's nothing to take lightly right but i think what's created a bit of a freneticness or passion maybe in this one yeah is just this idea that we are able to look back now 30 years on and say wow like america was genuinely hysterical and that's it's something to be amazed by and a little disconcerted with too yeah of course you should not take cocaine or smoke crack when you're pregnant no doctor on earth is going to say that's a good thing right but the crack baby was a myth and the one Emory professor that was in that New York Times uh, researcher uh, in the New York Times video came out and said, you know what, alcohol does much more physical damage and is much more widespread as an, ab- an abuse drug during pregnancy right. than crack or cocaine ever is. Right. But they're not locking ladies up. 
that are pregnant for drinking. And the reason they were doing it back then is because they were poor black women. Right. Um, we should say, though, the crack epidemic also, uh, while the sentences were stiffer, the um, the amount you got caught with was 100 times smaller to get the same the same uh, rap as getting caught with powdered cocaine. Yeah. There was something that came out of this crack epidemic that was a real threat, and that was the rise of the modern um, inner city gang. Yeah. Uh, at least as far as we know it, like Crips and Bloods and Folks and all those guys, they they came out of this era. They were able to buy the guns that they bought and fight the turf wars that they fought because they had this incredibly addictive drug that they could sell and control pretty easily yeah. in their hands all of a sudden. Yeah. So where that came from, who knows? Sure. But you can... all you can tr- The big problem with the crack epidemic that you can trace directly back to it is the rise of the modern gang. Wow. Drug gang. So in summary, crack, whack. Yeah. Crack babies, myth. <laughs> right. Crack sentencing laws. Whack. Whack. Uh, Gary Webb. um, Whacked. Whacked. (laughs) Very nice. I got nothing else. Okay. Perfect. Chuckers, how about you take us out with some listener mail? All right. This is from Rebecca, and it is about PTSD and uh, police chases. Um I've been a fan of you guys since the inception. I've listened to every episode. Nice. I always wanted to write in. Uh, until now, I didn't have a reason. Listening to the Police Chase podcast made me want to share my story. Years ago, I was the victim of a police chase. Some teenagers had stolen a car and were pursued by the cops. I'm not sure what caused them to pursue at high speeds, but they did. The chase resulted in the kids T-boning my car when I was stopped at a red light. Uh, the kids tried to take an incredibly sharp turn, essentially a U-turn, onto another road, and they were going way too fast. Um, the chase escalated to an on-foot chase, um, and it actually did end in arrests. I ended up having to be cut out of the car with the jaws of life. Jeez. Uh, only suffered minor head injuries despite my car being totaled. As a result of the incident, I began having anxiety and PTSD symptoms that were triggered by police sirens and intense stress. Wow. Uh, I had to receive treatment similar to some of what you discussed in the PTSD episode. Uh, all is well now. Uh, it didn't take too long. Um, with therapy to overcome everything. I just wanted to share the downside of police chases. Uh, I don't think that incident required a high-speed chase, and the result could have been much, much uh, worse. Wow. I really wish that police would stop to think before they pursued for minor crimes uh, and would get fined, even, or have some sort of penalty for causing accidents with innocent bystanders. And that is Rebecca. Well, thanks, Rebecca. Appreciate you sharing that. Sorry that happened to you. Glad you're doing better. Yeah. Um, if you want to share a personal experience from something that we have talked about in this episode or another one, you can uh, tweet to us, SYSK Podcast, Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know, Stuff Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.